0: Of Jesus, the message today is going to look at those who tried to stop, they wouldn't even say the name, to stop speaking the name Jesus. Well, I heard a story that a pastor told, so whether it's true or not, I don't know, right? It's about an old man uh, sitting on a porch of his uh, cabin, probably one of those Tennessee mountain homes, straight back chair, on two legs, leaned against the wall. And underneath the porch, he's got his six dogs. And all of a sudden, about 100 yards away, out in the field, this rabbit darts out from behind this bush. And he looks back at that porch, and then he dives into the underbrush. And all of a sudden, one of those dogs leaps up, barks, and then takes off running. And then, as soon as that happens, the five other dogs jump up, start yapping, and chasing after that first dog. And so that old man says to his uh, says to his uh, grandson, he says, Son, let me tell you what's about to happen. You see those five dogs that just ran off in about ten minutes, they're all going to come back one at a time with their heads hung low, tongues hanging out of their mouth, and they're going to lay back down. And then in about a half hour, that first dog is going to come back tail wagging, toting that rabbit. Well, sure enough, it's exactly what happened. And so the grandson said to his grandfather, Well, how would you know that was what was going to happen? He said, See, that first dog is the only one that saw the rabbit. The other five just heard the commotion. They got excited and they ran off in chasing that first dog. Some of y'all have dogs. You know exactly how it is. Well, I think just like those five dogs, a lot of people in the church get swept up in the passion of a good sermon or a great time of worship. They start to yap. They run off. And then after a while, one by one, they come back, heads hung low, tongues out of their mouth, and they just decide to lay back down. Only those who've really seen the rabbit... Keep running until they catch it. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been talking about the church. Why does it exist? What's the purpose of the church? What are we here for? And it's really easy to get caught up in tradition. It's easy to get caught up in the excitement and to not really know what we gather for. So I want us to be on the same page about who we are at First Baptist Church and what we exist for. So in order to best understand the church, we've been going through the book of Acts that tells us about the early church. In Acts 1, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit will come on his uh, followers and come in power, and they will be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. And then he ascends into heaven. In Acts 2, all of those apostles are gathered, and um, the fo- early followers are gathered in the upper room. This is the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes in power. And they begin to preach in languages they don't even know. And the foreigners in the city hear them declaring the good works of God. Then they follow them out, and Peter stands up, and he begins to preach. And the scripture says that 3,000 on that day believe and are baptized. And what we determined by looking at that passage is the local church should be united around worshiping the Lord, witnessing to the lost, and walking in the Spirit. That's what we should be doing as a church. And then in Acts 3, Peter and John encounter a man who was lame from birth. He's lying by the the, uh, uh, temple complex, the gates to the temple. And then the Holy Spirit empowers them to heal this man miraculously. This causes a great commotion. Everybody gathers to see what happens. Peter takes the opportunity to once more begin to preach. And it's in this text that we're call, we, we see that we are called to live on mission, recognizing that most of our greatest opportunities for ministry lie outside the walls of the church. In Acts 4, Peter and John are arrested for the message that they've been preaching, but 2,000 more believe in the gospel message. They're put on trial, then they're released and told not to speak the name. But they pray for boldness and they continue right along doing what they were called to do. In Acts 5, there are two early believers of the church who are struck dead because they lied to God. And then last week, we looked at the way that people are drawn to the apostles because of the amazing signs and wonders that are occurring in their ministry. Once more, they're arrested. In jail, an angel sets them loose. They go out early the next morning. They begin preaching one more time. Then they're drawn before the Sanhedrin Put on trial, and Peter, along with the apostles, declare before these people that are telling them to be quiet, they say, We must obey God rather than men. And what we saw in that passage is it becomes clear that risking for God is dangerous, but not risking is much more dangerous. And then, right after this, Peter proceeds to speak the gospel in Acts 5, verses 30 through 32. He speaks the gospel. And um, the people respond uh, to that, and uh, that's where we're going to be this morning in Acts 5, verse 33. And I'm just going to read to you to begin with Acts 5, verse 33, just the single verse. It says, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. So Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and when he writes this verse, he's referring to the Sanhedrin. Those are the ones who just heard Peter's gospel message in verses 30, 31, and 32. The Sanhedrin is the ruling religious authority among the Jews. And you'll recall that the Romans are in control of the land, so they are also the de facto political power brokers among the Jews. And so the Sadducees are the majority group within the Sanhedrin. This is a religious faction. They did not accept the oral teaching of the law, but only the written teaching of the law. And they had some messed up theology. They believed that all there is is what you see. So they did not believe in resurrection for the dead. They didn't believe in life after death. Well, they, But they also acquiesced within the Sanhedrin for the other religious faction, which was the minority party, the Pharisees. Now you're familiar with the Pharisees because Jesus had so many run-ins with them. But they uh, very often acquiesced to them because they were the ones who had the hearts of the masses of people. And so rather than deal with revolt, they would just say, okay, if y'all want to do that, we'll do this this time. So before the Sanhedrin, Peter declares that God sent Jesus to grant forgiveness to mankind. In Acts 2, when Peter preached that message in the temple complex, or outside the temple, um, probably on the southern steps of the city, the people were brought under conviction. But I want you to notice in this passage, here before the council of the Sanhedrin, Luke tells us that the men of the council were cut to the quick. That's what my version says. They were infuriated. They began to grind their teeth. They probably were tearing their clothing. They could not believe what they had hurt. They're not the least bit persuaded by Peter's appeal. Now, you would think... That the message of forgiveness that's available for those who will believe in Jesus would not stir up so much tension. But we see it in our own day. To make a truth claim in our world, especially in our own culture, brings out the clause. Because many within our culture believe that truth is, um, well, you know, what's true for you may not be true for me. Truth is relative. And so for the believer to declare that truth is absolute and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life very often causes strain in relationships. It causes tension. It did the same thing in the early church environment. So it's no different than it's ever been. The men who have put Peter and the apostles on trial are cut to the quick, and then the scripture tells us they intended to kill them. They wanted to get their hands on them. They wanted to stone them. They wanted to get rid of them. Now, there's no basis for them to have him killed. But remember, with Jesus, that didn't get in their way either. And so they want to kill this man. The The apostles have a serious problem at this point. The Sadducees wanted them dead. But there's a more moderate voice that speaks up among the Sanhedrin. So look with me at verses 34 and 35. It says, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. So Gamaliel is the voice of reason in the Sanhedrin on this day. So who is he? Well, Gamaliel is, according to the scripture, a respected Pharisee among the council. According to one commentator, Gamaliel was the greatest teacher of his era. He was considered the embodiment of Phariseeism. He's the grandson of a very famous rabbi, the Rabbi Hillel. And he's a leader of the council. We know that between the years 25 and 50 A.D., this was one of the most influential men in Jewish life. And one of the ways that we remember Gamaliel is that he was the mentor to Saul, who we remember as Paul. Remember whenever Paul is giving his testimony before the Jewish mob there in Jerusalem, he says in uh, Acts 22, verse 3, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated by Gamaliel. And that was his insider term. All of a sudden, they are want to you know, get rid of him, Paul then in Jerusalem. And he just throws in this term, I am a student of Gamaliel. And they say, okay, hold on a second. Because he was such a respected man in Jerusalem. Well, Gamaliel is an important figure. He calls for the council. He says, let's go into executive session. Go into executive session. I want to make some comments before we you know, are too rash with this decision about the Christian evangelists. Well, he's a Pharisee. And so that would mean that Gamaliel would be much more sympathetic to the Christian's Because he also believed that there was to be a Messiah. He just did not believe that it was Jesus. He also believed, unlike the Sadducees, that there was resurrection for the dead. He believed in life after death. So perhaps he's saying, you know, he understood where they were coming from. But this does not mean, in any stretch of the imagination, that he's concerned for the welfare of these guys. It doesn't mean that he's thinking, I gotta do something here so that the gospel continued to advance. Primarily, he just thought that if the apostles are killed by the Sanhedrin, we're probably going to have trouble on our hands with the masses. So he makes a very simple argument before the council in the next three verses. He essentially is saying, this is not the first time we've seen a movement like this. This is not new. We've seen things like this before, and he gives a couple of examples. He, He mentions a guy named Thutis and a Judas the Galilean. And he says, remember those guys? In both cases, they had this great movement, but in no time, their lives were cut short. Then all of a sudden, their teaching just kind of started to dissipate, and then their followers were scattered, and the movement died off. And so he says, why should we not think the same thing's going to happen with this movement? Because remember, Jesus is dead. So... He's essentially saying, with Jesus dead, the movement of Christianity is going to fizzle out at some point. So let's just hold our horses here. There's no need to get up all in arms. There's no need to do something rash that might cause a problem that, you know, then we'll have to deal with. So he says at the very, there at the end of uh, verse 38, if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. And you have to wonder, what are his motives here? What is Gamaliel attempting to do here? Now, it could have been a political move because we do know he was concerned with uh, peace in Jerusalem. He knew that if things got out of hand, that they might lose their ability to lead because the Romans would put a stop to it. And so it could have been that he's saying, let's not do that. Let's just wait and see because we don't want to cause more problems than they already have. And then he offers another side to the argument. Verse 39, he says, but if it is of God, speaking of the Christian movement, you will not be able to overthrow them or else you may be found fighting against God. Some people read this passage, and they speculate that perhaps Gamaliel thought that Jesus could have been the Messiah. And maybe he's just watching to see if maybe it's going to move in that direction. But I would tell you there's no real evidence of that. He's a good public speaker, but there's no real evidence that that's really what he believed. What I think that he's doing is what so many other people do. He's straddling the fence. He's saying, let's just let it run its course and see what happens. You know, let's not pick a side until we have to. Let's not endorse the candidate until something else changes here. You know, he says, it's probably going to die out, and then maybe we will not, you know, we'll be better off for it. He says, though, if it doesn't die out, then maybe God's behind it. Well, the big idea I think that Gamaliel is making here is... Man is really not in control. He is saying there's somebody else that's in control. He's saying God is going to work out his will. We're simply pawns. He's the master. Let's let us see how this is going to pan out. And he reinforces the point by saying we don't want to be found fighting against God. But there's a big chance. That Gamaliel really didn't want to fight the Jewish population. Not necessarily God. He just didn't want to fight the Jewish population. So what happens? Look at verse 40. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So Gamaliel's voice of reason wins the argument here. He won the day. The council um, backed down from their original cries to have these men killed. Clearly, God used Gamaliel to achieve his good purposes. That's what's happening here. But the apostles didn't get away unscathed. Luke tells us they were flogged and they were ordered to remain silent, to don't speak the name Jesus anymore. That's what they're saying to him. Now, flogging likely meant that they endured the customary 39 lashes that was used as a punishment or a warning to say, don't keep doing what you're doing right now. You need to put a stop to it. And so the one who's being punished would uh, be bare-chested, kneeling down. And they would take, a a guard would whip them across the chest and the back 39 times. So it's no simple slap on the wrist. It's real punishment, pain, humiliation. There are records that some died from the flogging. And so they're flogged and then they're sent on their way and said, stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Now I want you to consider something from the New Testament here. Throughout the New Testament, the apostles and members of the church are imprisoned and then put on trial. And what we discover is that in those trials, the believers did not go in trying to win the case. They didn't go in to say, but y'all are wrong, you can't do this to us. They didn't argue their rights. They might have used logic to win a debate with maybe some Jews that they encountered, but their goal when on trial was not winning. It was always to advance the gospel. You can study through the New Testament and see this because Paul's put on trial several times. And every time he takes advantage of the opportunity to preach the gospel. Peter's already done it. And now it's happening again. So there's this tradition that begins. When you're put on trial for your belief in Jesus, take opportunity to advance the gospel. So it's not likely that the order to remain silent worked for the apostles. They don't walk away though and start shouting about the injustices of the system. They don't, uh, you know, protest. They don't, they don't launch a coup. They don't uh, say, we want another trial, a fair trial, a new judge, another town. Instead, what do they do? They walk away rejoicing. And you think, what in the world? Are they masochists? You know, they've been beaten, and here they are rejoicing for it. What's going on here? Luke says, in the book of Acts here, they were rejoicing... Uh, They were rejoicing because, let me find it, that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. They were proud that rather than being honored, rather than receiving accolades from the council or pats on the back, they were brought before the council dishonored and humiliated with a public punishment. What kind of backwards thinking is that? We're celebrating the fact that rather than being honored, we're dishonored. Well, they follow Jesus. Jesus once upon a t- uh, time had said to them, Luke six verse twenty three, "Blessed are you when men hate you, and ostracize you, and insult you, and scorn your name as evil, for the sake of the Son of Man." They recognized that what was happening is precisely what Jesus said would happen. And it's going to turn out for their good. They're going to receive blessing. Blessed are you when this happens. So they rejoice in their persecution. And then they return to what they already had been doing. They continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They didn't stop. In fact, what is clear is that they were being disobedient to the ruling authorities. We call that civil disobedience. Civil disobedience for the sake of Christ is maybe a, uh, a place where godly people disagree. But I would suggest there, there are probably at least two ways or two situations where the believer should possibly engage in civil disobedience. First of all, when Christians are required to deny their faith in Christ or to explicitly disown the Lord by the governing authorities, then I believe the Christian it's incumbent upon the Christian to disobey the law. Second, when the state has required that Christians take part in an action which is in clear conflict with their Christian-informed conscience, then that's very likely a situation where Christians are to disobey the law. So Peter is being pressured here to deny the faith because to refuse to witness is denying the faith. And that's what he's being told to do, so he disobeys. In fact, the, Christi- uh, the Scripture says the apostles were teaching and proclaiming every day. Did you see that? It seems that the flogging had not calmed things down. It had spurred them forward. And so they were just, you know, now just as committed to the advance of the gospel as they had been in the beginning. And so they're going to the temple where the people are gathering. They're going into homes. They're advancing it there. It's the same thing today. We should gather together where people are. We should also go from home to home to preach and teach the message of the faith. And so this reminds me of Paul's words to the church at uh, Ephesus in Ephesians five, uh, verse uh, uh, excuse me Ephesians five, verse fifteen and sixteen. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. So, making the most of your time, I think we could look at the rapid advance of the church in the early days of the church. And they were letting no moment escape them. They were taking advantage of every opportunity. So what we see is it's clear that God used Gamaliel's actions to save the apostles. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that God will not allow anything to stand in the way of the proclamation of the gospel and the advance of the church. Language barriers couldn't hold it back. Prison bars and guards could not hold it back. Intimidation by political leaders could not hold it back. Official trials and punishment by flogging could not hold it back. Threats against the believers by those in uh, leadership could not hold it back. So God will not allow anything to stand in the way of the advance of the gospel and the spread of the church. Well, this really brings two questions to mind that I want us to answer this morning. First is this. Who is in control? That's the question that Gamaliel is asking here. Who's in charge? Is there anybody above the circumstances of life? Is there anybody holding everything together? Is there anybody working to achieve an end goal with human history? Am I the one who's in control of the outcomes of my life? Can a council decide to put a stop to something that God is doing? Who's in control? A God who empowers and leads his church in carrying out His mission, in spite of the odds, is the one who's in control. And he is in control of your life. And he is holding all things together at this very moment. See, I desperately need a God who's in control of things. That holds in his hands the outcomes of my life. I desperately need a God I can cry out to with need. And I receive that. Not only that. He doesn't just hear my Christ, he's delighted to listen and then to respond. If we believe God is in control, then it should affect the way we see the world. It should affect the way we see the circumstances of our life. Rather than just seeing ourselves as a victim of what's happening to us, of hopelessly bobbing around in the world with no real hope, we can trust that God has an end game in mind, even with our specific life. And we should recognize He's moving the events of history along in order to achieve his desired purposes. And we're not just pawns, but we are dearly loved children who have been commissioned as witnesses. So it may look like that darkness is winning in our world. It may look like the the advance of the gospel is waning. But we can be confident God's in control and nothing can stand in the way of the proclamation of the gospel and the advance of his church. There's also some irony here. Because Gamaliel says, I mean, what if God's for this thing? Well, don't we see evidence of that? I mean, he's already confirmed it through the miracles, the wonders that are taking place. And Gamaliel's saying, well, who knows? God might move on their behalf. He has been moving on their behalf. It's clear that he was working towards that. You know why? Because God's in control. The second question we consider is, what happens when God doesn't intervene on our behalf? Did you notice that God, who's in control... And was confirming he was, for the apostles, allowed them to be beaten, to be flogged. Dearly loved children, flogged. If God is in control, then why did he do that? And what I think the scriptures make clear is that as believers in Jesus Christ, our understanding of success has to be sanctified. See, success for most people, most of us, most people in the world, is, you know, our our family is healthy, happy, thriving, and safe. I mean, that's what we really ask for in life. That's what success looks like. And if I'm honest, that's deep down, that's exactly what I want. But that is not what success looks like in the kingdom of God, and that's a tough pill to swallow. But I believe in a God who's in control of all things, that's bringing about his good purposes, that's called me to serve him, that is working all things together for my good, And I know that part of his recipe for the advance of the gospel and for the development of me as a believer is very often suffering. It includes suffering. But I can trust that he's going to use my suffering for a purpose. Nothing's going to be wasted. Therefore, suffering is honor. Suffering can bring joy. So Peter believed this. He even wrote about it in his epistle. And those in the early church believed the statement We must obey God rather than men. So Gamaliel proposed that if the Christian movement persists, then it's clear God's behind it. If it's successful, then God must be for it. So I would say to you today, 2,000 years later, how can we be half-hearted about the gospel, the advance of his kingdom? Warren Wiersbe writes, Every Christian is a witness, a good one or a bad one. Our witness either draws others to Christ or drives them away. So how about you? What's it like with you? Let me offer to you a practice to start each day. You begin the day each each morning this week by asking the Lord for the wisdom and grace that's needed to be a loving witness for Jesus that day. And I would say this, if you sincerely look for opportunities and if you expect God to give them to you, you'll never lack for an open door. So, will you begin praying for wisdom and grace to be a loving witness for Jesus this week? Well, what I see in Acts 5 is a text that pulsates with the urgency of the evangelistic task. But I have to point this out Gamaliel's advice here is not really the best advice. I mean, we read it and we think, isn't that great? It's so true. If it persists, if it's successful, then how in the world could you deny that God is at work, that God's for it? But is this really the best advice? In fact, I think his logic is flawed. First of all, Gamaliel, um, he categorized Jesus with the rebels. In other words, he immediately rejects the evidence that maybe God is for Jesus. He sees Jesus as just some other rebel that's trying to win freedom for the Jews, But did Thutis or Judas do the things that Jesus did? Did he perform the miracles, fulfill prophecy? Did they rise from the dead? But Gamaliel labels Jesus as a troublemaker. He also had the mistaken idea that if something succeeds, um, uh, uh, excuse me, if something is not of God, then it will fail. He contends that the movement will probably die out. If not, then that must mean God's fort. But that does not take into consideration all of the evil, wicked things that persist in our world. That God is not for. Mark Twain said a lie runs around the world while truth is still putting on her shoes. We experience that today with all the fake news. So you think, well, if it's successful, it must be true. But success is not always the best test of truth. Here's the greatest problem with this advice. It's so pragmatic. Just wait and see what happens. You know, straddle the fence. Don't take a stand. Well, I think the problem for many people is that's what they're doing. They're just sitting and observing. When we face a serious matter of conscience, we must make a decision. And Jesus demands it from us. Don't just try and measure or observe. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the son of God? Is his death on the cross sufficient for giving me forgiveness? Did he rise from the dead and point towards the hope of resurrection for me? Do you believe that? Have you received him? Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. So Jesus makes it clear. It's impossible to be neutral about him and his message. So don't just wait and see what happens. Hear the gospel. Make a decision. Now don't get me wrong. God used Gamaliel's advice, even though it might have been bad. It was a memorable speech, and God used it for his purposes. But, and the church advanced the gospel spread. But let me conclude here. You remember the rabbit and the dog's? Have you seen the rabbit or are you just following the commotion? Have you truly encountered Jesus or does the sound and the smiles just keep your attention? Remember Peter and the apostles' motivation, they had seen the Lord. They had been with him in the Galilee. They heard his teaching, they saw his miracles, they were deeply moved by his life. They saw him suffer and die and then something dramatically changed within them. When they saw that he was resurrected. And now they were willing to live and die for the sake of the kingdom. Are you willing to take your stand for Jesus today? Here's the deal. God's in control. His plan is his kingdom come. His will be done. Nothing's going to stand in the way of that plan. As members of the First Baptist Church. And as members of of the Church of Jesus Christ. We're called to live our lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus and for the honor of his name. Will you join me in that? Our Father in God, we thank you so much for the example that's been set before us. Lord, now I pray that each person here would respond. Are we gonna chase after you, or are we just gonna watch other people do it? Lord, I pray for those here that don't know you, that today they might respond to you in the gospel message. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We come to an invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, if perhaps it's to respond to the gospel or join the church, I invite you to do so. So I'm going to invite you to stand as our choir sings. I'll be down front. If God speaks to you, you respond. And stay standing because this is going to be quick. I am thrilled that you're here, and uh, I want to remind you: be praying for our college students. They're on spring break. Uh, several of them on a trip to Miami. You pray for them while they're serving down there this week, and uh, you uh, also just uh, remember the message here. Uh, that we are called to seek after him and to follow him wherever that takes us. So I'll be praying for you this week that you'll say yes to him. Let's pray our benediction. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the proclamation of it. Now, Lord, help us to apply it to our hearts as we walk out of here today. It's in Christ's name that we pray.